I'm Nick Harvey-Doyle, an Anawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. There's this phrase, God Mode, that was born out of the gaming world. It refers to a notorious cheat code in the 1993 shooter game, Doom. Once activated, a player becomes invincible and vanquishes opponents with ease. Nowadays, God Mode is a slang term for achieving superhuman feats in real life. And in our era of artificial intelligence and cybernetic implants, it's becoming more and more pertinent. This week, we're bringing you stories that delve into this issue, asking whether AI should continue an artist's legacy after death, and how medical breakthroughs in cloning can improve nature. It's the first episode of Not Natural, a series about the friction between what we consider natural and artificial. These stories were made for the Science Gallery, which has just opened its new exhibition, also called Not Natural. Go and see it now to explore de-extinction, sea live jellyfish, and duck from a machete-wielding houseplant. First up, digital brain implants could restore vision to the blind and movement to paraplegics if they can afford it. Annie Siri Patrasopin investigates the promises and potential perils of this breakthrough. If there's anything you want to ask, just ask Cedric. Ever thought you could instantaneously download skills like in the Matrix or exchange dreams like in Inception? Keep your eyes on the future because it might be closer than you think. Neuralink, a technology that might elevate the way we see reality. Hmm, if I were to explain Neuralink to Neo from the Matrix, I'd say something like, Hey, Neo, so you know how in your world, you plug in to learn Kung Fu super fast? Well, in our world, we have something called Neuralink. But don't worry, it's not for uploading martial arts or turning us into robots or anything like that. Instead, the goal is to help people who can't move their arms or legs, or people who can't see or hear, by connecting their brain directly to machines. But just like the Matrix, it's a big responsibility, and we have to think really hard about the best ways to use it. Intriguing, isn't it? But Neuralink is more than just superhuman abilities. Dr. Jason Forte, who specializes in neurobiology, thinks it's a ray of hope for people with neurological disorders. So Neuralink is mostly going to be useful when it can be uh, implanted in motor or sensory areas of the brain to decode the neural activity in those areas. So for example, recording from the motor areas of the brain would allow um, the neural activity that might not otherwise get to the legs, for example, because someone has a spinal injury, to be actually decoded and used to control some kind of walking device. While being innovative, Aidan Ronagal McNall, a PhD student in moral psychology, said this technology also prompts challenging ethical issues. From my perspective, um, the most pressing ethical dilemma uh, involved in the Neuralink technology 
is who is going to benefit most from this technology. Will people's thoughts, people's habits, people's behaviors be available for the company supplying the technology to use, to sell, to profit from? And how will this, the access to this new technology be supplied in a ethical manner? For instance, say Neuralink technology allows people who can't walk to walk or people who can't see to see. Will they only be able to do that based on a subscription service? If you're behind on your payments, does that mean you're suddenly no longer able to see anymore? While we daydream about having our favorite music streamed straight into our brains, let's consider the issues raised by Neuralink. Perhaps a new age is just around the corner, but are we ready? That was Anne Suri Patrasopin. Next, Casper Vassar investigates a terminally ill artist using AI to extend the lifespan of his creative spirit. The combination of AI and art is current yet controversial. However, groups are pushing forward and asking whether it can be done ethically. Melbourne-based artist Anthony Breslin is partnering with the company VAA Isual, creating a generative software that produces artworks in his style. I guess I was a good candidate for them. One, because they really like my work, and which is helpful. And two, because I'm prolific. So they've got lots and lots of imagery they can use. From his celebrated paintings to vibrant operas and theatre, Anthony Breslin has had a successful career. However, in 2015, Breslin was diagnosed with leukaemia. His condition has since become terminal, and his rare genetic mutation continuously produces cancerous polyps in his colon. I'm potentially I've got terminal cancer, and I was given like roughly four months to a year to live three months ago. So I don't expect to get over the year, but who knows. For Breslin, this has been a long and painful battle, affecting his life and his work. I'm disabled, I can't walk properly, I can't pick up things off the ground, I've got no flexion in my ankle, I can't straighten my legs, you know, so causing a lot of problems and inhibits my abilities to do my performance work or what I can't do it anymore. You might have heard some rustling on the mic as Breslin runs his hand across his puffer jacket. It's bright red and pops out with colour just like his furry blue pants. Sitting in his small studio in the Beringer Cultural Centre in Leafy Upway, Breslin tells me about his reason for embracing AI artwork. The thing that got me, I think, was them saying that they wanted to make games for children. So therefore I thought the combination of their input and my imagery, which they're making up their mind of how it goes together, becomes a more of a right brain, brain tool for them than a left brain tool. And then when the AI, I imagine, produces something based on my imagery, they'll look at it and go, no, 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 I want it to go this way, I want it to go more like that. So it's still spurring them on to be more creative in the right side of their brain. He's hopeful it will be a learning tool for kids to expand their creativity, and he doesn't really see the concerns about ownership. As far as Breslin goes, who can really say they own the art anyway? My philosophical slant on reality is what governs my decision. And that is the fact that I know 100% that I don't think of this stuff. It makes itself through me and everything in life makes itself, creates itself through us. So getting involved in AI for me, some people get really precious, it's my idea, you can't have it, I'm scared of it being 
taken into this realm. But my take on it all is, what the fuck does it matter? Because none of it belongs to me. Everything comes through us all. Everything does. This puts forward an interesting thought about the things we create. Is AI going to change creativity forever? And in what new and unexpected ways? That was Casper Vassar. In our next story, Gemma Mitchell learns how cloned horses are leading human polo riders to victory. But is it at the expense of the animal's dignity? For some, it seems the cloning of animals crosses that invisible border between the natural and non-natural. And I think where this comes from is the scary thought of what some people may believe is the next inevitable step of human cloning. The cloning of ponies in the polo community is attempted for the duplication of a successful competition horse, and it's becoming more popular with elite players cloning their entire stable. World number one Adolfo Cambiasso's use of clones has just been deemed arguably more remarkable than his enduring status as world number one, an idea that poses the issue of money over talent in the polo world. To learn more about this, I inquire with professional polo player Sterling McGregor. Why do you think the polar community has been more accepting of cloning when it's still frowned upon in other sports? So that's a great question, right? Because polo, basically, you want the best car and in expensive sports, no-one cares how you get there. We all just all want the best horses, right? So it doesn't really matter how we get this. It's a race to the best. In racing Formula One, they just design the best car. Polo's going to come like this. A bit like um, a bit like Formula One, so they're going to start to regulate horses. Cloning confers a competitive advantage to those with more money, which essentially violates the spirit of fair play. Do you agree? No, it, is, it perpetuates the better, better, better model. Cloning. You remember a cloned horse? You clone it today. It's seven years old, so we're seven years ahead. Is that really going to be the best horse? It's a complete gamble whether that horse is going to be actually better than genetic improvement. There's been studies concerning the health hazards of cloning, such as fetal defamation and embryonic loss, but there's still a lack of comprehensive results due to the industry's infancy. There are also those that argue against cloning on the grounds of it being an affront to the animal's dignity, and I asked for Sterling's thought on this. Well, they have dignity, but I don't know what they think because they can't speak. The acceptance of cloning by authorities in the polo world raises two different views. One, that it can only improve the supply of good quality ponies and thus the sport. And on the other hand, that it could stop evolution. As a solution to this, they're introducing regulations of horses in the near future, as Sterling mentioned. But I think this comparison may lend itself to many as very much veering off into the not natural when we start to compare animals to machines and treat them and regulate them as such. That was Gemma Mitchell. In today's final story, we're delving back into artificial intelligence and how it can deceive music lovers by mimicking their favorite singers. Are these hoaxes just frivolous fun or harbingers of rampant fraud? Ainsley Patton investigates. That 
was a song written by Drake and produced by Noah Shabib, included as part of his 2018 album Scorpion. The song cost $100,000 to record in Metalworks Studio in Ontario and sold 1 million copies in its first week of release. Okay, that wasn't true, but it sounded pretty convincing. I wanted to see if this AI-generated song could fool anyone else, so I took to the University of Melbourne's Professor's Walk to interview some students. Who do you think this song is by? It sounds kind of like Drake. Drake? Drake? Drake. Based on these reactions, I decided to speak to Melbourne singer-songwriter Noah Sahaley to see if AI-generated songs are actually a threat to the music industry. For some context, here's a snippet of his recent release called It All Just Stays The Same. I just became a better Piss that I missed the picture I'm into it the way you want, yeah Cause it's such a straight shooter I'm kind of in two minds about like whether AI can even produce groundbreaking music or what that even really means. It's gonna be way easier for AI to make kind of generic music and make what is typically pop or what's typically, it won't really be able to bend the idea of genre. And I think that has been something that's been super present in the music industry as of like a post COVID world. For already established or successful songwriters or artists, uh, AI is definitely a threat. I'm thinking like, it, it's almost a bit dehumanizing to just kind of say like, I don't want your artistry. I just want your voice. I think I'm not really scared of AI, but I am worried because the last time that I can think of something that has been this big of a change in the music industry was the illegal kind of downloading of music and that completely changed the industry. Streaming is now the dominating factor in everything. <laughs> so I think whatever these laws will end up being, whether it's the protection of an artist's voice, I'm not sure how they could do that, but whatever it is, I think it's going to be kind of the next kind of wave or generation of a massive change in the music industry. That was Ainsley Patton. A massive thank you to producers Annie Suri Patrasopin, Casper Vassar, Gemma Mitchell, and Ainsley Patton. The yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week.